It's good to see you all here this morning and glad you made the choice to join us. We're uh, finished up our series through the book of Proverbs and we're starting back. We're actually moving forward by stepping back. I know that doesn't necessarily make sense, but in the fall, if you remember, we were in a series going through the book of Mark and uh, we were working chapter by chapter and we hit the pause button because as we we're getting closer to the end of the, the narrative, we were like, oh, wait a second, that, that lends better to Easter. And so now we're picking back up in the book of Mark in chapter 14 and continuing leading up through Easter. So if you want to start flipping your Bible with me to Mark 14, we're going to be looking at a text in the account of, of Peter. I've titled this morning it as a restoration story. And when I think about it, how we're just drawn to things that are being restored. In fact, when I say restoration, I'm referring to what Webster describes as returning something to its former condition or position. You see, the more damaged something is, the more broken or beat up something is, the more compelling it is to see it restored. You can see this picture there of a pretty beat up car just this last year for my birthday. I had Brian Ordelhide took me over to the Mullen Auto Museum in Oxnard. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to go there. It's actually a, a pretty impressive experience. It wouldn't be the exact cars uh, that I'd necessarily be drawn to, but each one of them in its own right was a piece of art, not the usual typical muscle cars that I like. But if you look at some of these pictures there, there's a pretty impressive one. This one, interesting thing about that one, was sold in the 60s for the, around $25 million dollars. Uh, now they're, they're, they can't even put a number attached to it. Crazy to see some of these cars, uh, all each a unique piece and each having a different story of restoration. Uh, we walked around and had the little mini tour and just talking about it and hearing how, oh, this one was retrieved and then redone and restored and this one took 12 years to redo and like just these crazy stories of things that were broken and damaged. And the ultimate picture, that one there, still obviously needs a little bit of work, uh, it, it, it is one of those things that's compelling. The more damaged and broken something is, the more compelling it is to see it when it's finally restored. You think about that from a human perspective, the same is true. We can't seem to get enough of restoration stories when you hear of someone that's just broken and they've been just beat up and they're, they've wandered and they've strayed and you're like, man, I don't ever see this person coming back. And then you see the power of a restored life. I think that's one of the reasons we're so drawn to Scripture because it's account after account of one person restored, another person restored, somebody that seemed beyond hope. And this morning, that's the same truth with the story of Peter. Or really, the truth is why we're drawn, I think, to the stories is in our own lives. We all crave, we all desire, we all recognize our need, not just for a one-time restoration, but a daily, a regular renewal, a regular bringing back, a little buffing, a little shining, a little bit re, uh, of adding armor all back on the tires because we have this tendency we're prone to wander and need restoration. So this morning in our text, Peter is me, Peter is you, he's the story of each of us. Basically, we're going to break this morning into four scenes, if you will, of the narrative, a story that you might be familiar with, but hopefully pointing out some different nuances to the story here this morning. We're going to start in Mark 14, but before we do that, let me just pray for our time together. 
Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this chance to be in your house and to take pause in our week and the, the chaos and the routine that we get ourselves sucked into to slow down enough and look at your word and get back to the pictures that you've painted of restoration. Thank you for our text this morning and that the reminder that no one's beyond repair, no one's beyond your fixing. Pray that this might be a, a refreshing look at the character of God, not as an angry God waiting to club us as we make mistakes, but the one who wants to restore and make new. We praise you for that this morning. We pray that you'd open our eyes as we unpack this text. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. In chapter 14, we're going to look just briefly at verses 26 through 31. And I describe this one as denial predicted. It's scene one, if you will, in the four. Verse 26 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pause there for a moment just to unpack what's happening, what's going on here. It's just a little after the Last Supper where they're in the upper room and they're dialoguing. And they had been just, just in the, the dinner, if you remember, Jesus had dropped the bomb about Judas being the betrayer. We're not sure how many of them understood who, who he was pointing to, but I'm sure that was still on their lips, still on their minds, wondering, what, is this, what does this betrayal look like? What, is it, what does he mean when we're going to all fall away? So I'm, still, I'm confident their conversation, or at least their thoughts, were still on this idea of wandering from Christ. Then Jesus drops the other bomb. What does he say to these uh, men? He says, listen, you're all going to fall away. All of you. In other words, you're each going to abandon me when things get tough. He reveals Jesus Christ perfectly, his deity, that he understands what's about to happen. I notice in the, the weather here in, in California how few times they actually get it right. You know, like they predict things and you're like, man, what job can you have where you're very rarely right and still keep it? And so, but, but here Jesus proves his deity saying, listen, I'm saying not just that you're going to betray me. I'm going to spell out exactly what it's going to look at. He not only predicts it, he points to the scripture attached to it that also predicted it. Zechariah 13, 7 had said, so when Jesus says it is written, had said that the shepherd's sheep would wander. This is finally coming to fruition. It'd stink if you think about it as a disciple to think you're there, you're hearing this prediction, you're hearing this old prophecy spoken of, of the, the sheep wandering, and you're like, wait a second, he's talking about me. I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy. That'd be hard to swallow. That'd be hard to absorb that. And that's what he's speaking to his disciples. And then you take it even further, thinking about what Jesus must have been feeling in this. Sometimes you wonder, man, that would be tough to actually see the, the future and to know exactly what was going to happen. You're like, wait a second. These guys, 
these guys that I've just invested the last three years and I've poured everything into them, now when things get tough, they're going to wander. How motivated would you be to go hang on a cross on their behalf? Like that, that, that's crazy kind of love, and yet he's predicting each of it perfectly. He knows the exact details. What does he say? This very night, he's describing that. It's gonna, he's not saying like, hey, this vague, like at some point you're going to start to wander. Like, no, he's saying, listen, this night you're going to do it before the, the, the rooster crows. He's saying that basically in that time, they had divided the night into four segments. You had night, which was 6 p.m. till 6 a.m., basically broken into four parts. Evening was from 6 to 9 p.m., so that was considered evening. Your next segment of a night was broken into the 9 to 12, and that time period was called midnight. So 9 to 12 was described as midnight. And then the hours between mid, what we describe as midnight, between 12 and 3, was considered or called when the rooster crows. So that period, maybe they couldn't be so exact or precise because they varied in their crow times. But, uh, but that was described as the rooster crowing from 12 to 3. And then 3 to 6 was considered morning. So that's the part of the, the, the evening that was de- or the night that was described as morning. So you see all of that in this. He's saying, I'm being so precise. I'm telling you that somewhere between 12 and 3, you're going to betray me three times. You're going to betray me. So it's not this vague prediction. He's saying, listen, and how, how, how easy would it have been for Peter to say, listen, I'm clock checking, and from 12 to 3, I'm not saying a word. I'm just going to sit in silence. Like Jesus is calling him out right there, saying, listen, this very night, in just a few hours from now, you're going to deny me. Pretty powerful. They can't say, they can't go back to Jesus and say, listen, you didn't tell us what was going to happen. Why didn't you let us know what was going to go down? He's like, I told you precisely what was going to happen. You're going to wander. You're going to stray. The good news, he does leave them hope. He says, after I'm raised, I will go before you. In other words, personally, I will bring you back. I'll get you back on track. And Peter's pride, what does he say? He debates him and says, listen, this is never going to happen. I know, Jesus, you've never been wrong before. I know God's word's never been wrong before, but this is the one time it's wrong. Like, you, like the, the pride there, if you think about it, is pretty significant to tell Jesus Christ, I know you're saying that's going to happen, but I'm telling you it's not going to. Why are we so slow to admit our frailty and weaknesses? What is with that? Why are we so slow to admit our frailty and weaknesses? And it wasn't just Peter. What does it say at the end of the section there? They all said the same thing. We're easy to, to bag on Peter and be like, yeah, you, you called it out and you blew it. But they all said the same things. It's easy to live in an illusion about our own spiritual strength. That's why 1 Corinthians ten twelve says this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Be careful. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to think, to come to this conclusion that you're, that you're there and you're able to dig in your heels and in your own strength you're able to do something. In reality, you're not. Unfortunately, this is what we see in scene two where his prediction is fulfilled. 
We're going to glance down a few verses as it picks up the narrative there in chapter 14. So Mark 14, 66, verse 66, we're going to see the story continue. It says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began, listen to this, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. It's a hard scene to watch if we're honest, watching one of Jesus' closest friends collapsing under fear. Ever stop and think for a second, what was he so afraid of? Wasn't this like a, a little girl like coming to him and asking him, like, what was he afraid of? I think we have to look at the bigger picture of what was happening there to understand what the, the fear that was, that was in, going on there. In each different one of the Gospels, it gives this same account. In John 18, it describes what was happening here. John 18, we see that Peter is trying to follow closely behind Jesus to see how things were going to play out. He's trying to sit, stay as close as possible. And so he had effectively snuck in to the courtyard of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time. And in that courtyard where he was standing, where Jesus was meeting before Aunt Annas, who was, another, was the father-in-law of Caius, who was accusing, they were accusing Jesus before. So he had snuck his way into this courtyard. Now these homes aren't massive mansions, so you imagine the courtyard, if you're right outside, it'd be right outside of the home, most likely even in the night air, hearing every word that's spoken, right? You can't picture the, a, a huge yard or anything like that. He's in the courtyard of the high priest. So he's right in enemy's territory, if you will. In that time, in that system, the religious leaders was basically the government system in place. So these would have been the po most two powerful men of that time and had the potential to take his life along with Jesus Christ. So it wasn't him just cowering timid of a little girl. There was a lot at stake here. So let's not be too hard on Peter. Like this was a life and death situation. If he's in the courtyard of the high priest, like, hey, this is dangerous territory. You ever wonder yourself, if you were in that situation or present day, how you would respond? Where life and death is on the line and you're, you're called to make a decision. Are you going to proclaim Christ or are you going to deny Christ? I was reading a little bit this week, a little bit about what's going on in Iraq. And we see it all over the news. It's interesting in the, 
Islamic teaching that they're given permission that they're given permission to lie in order to protect themselves if if they're under uh, under threat and so to lie in, uh, about Muhammad or to protect yourself is part of that religious system unfortunately or, or fortunately however you want to look at it as a Christ follower we're not allowed to we're not given permission to deny him. In fact, we're told to expect that under the name of Jesus Christ, we're going to receive ridicule. He even says, that they hated me. Why wouldn't they hate you? We shouldn't be shocked by it. Reading a little bit, and I know you guys are seeing it all on the news as well. It's interesting going on in Iraq where they're trying to institute uh, a, a, a state where, where Christians are basically outlawed. One of the things that they're doing in the homes in Iraq, you can see this symbol there, is they're going around and they're putting this symbol in red spray paint on doors of known Christians. Basically, this is the letter N for basically identifying someone as a Nazarene, the first letter for Nazarene, follower of the Nazarene. It's interesting, and then the person that has that red mark on the door in Iraq currently is then basically given an ultimatum that they either convert or suffer the consequences, many times even at risk of death. So either deny Christ, and so sometimes we read Scripture and we're just like, we're like, oh, wait, wait a second. This is, that was terrible what used to happen to Christians. That's right. Guess what? Still happening today. People having that crossroads, that decision to make of embracing. And it's, I thought it was also interesting, even the, the, the claim that was back there in verse 67. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Thousands of years later, you still Following the Nazarene, Jesus, still the N on your doorpost. A lot of us wonder, how would I respond in that situation? Would I be able to do it? Would I be able to stand firm in my faith? It's a legitimate question. It's a fair question I think each of us would wrestle through. But I would propose something that the question, if you're asking the question, could I do it? The answer is no. I would propose that the answer, could I do it? The answer is no. In my own strength, I can't do it. That's why the, that, that's the, here, the whole problem with Peter. Is he had gotten sucked into like, listen, I will never turn on you. I will never betray you. I this, I that. This whole culture thing that we feed into is this some kind of an inner strength is a lie. We can't do this on our own. Take a moment and burst someone's bubble next to you and tell them, you're weak. You're weak. Tell them, go ahead, do it. Tell somebody, burst their bubble right now. You're, you're, you're weak. You're weak. It's good. Listen, okay, we were pretty excited to do that. Let's take a moment. We, Peter, needed somebody to pull him aside and say, Peter, you're weak. You're not as strong as you think you are. He had to learn it, unfortunately, the hard way. It's interesting how many people buy into the lie that I am strong. I'm able to do this in my own strength. And you think to yourself, you're like, you know what? I'll probably never have that crossroad where I'll have a gun to my head or have to make a choice. We don't know that. We don't know what the future holds. 
But you think about it in our lives, just bringing it down to, down to home, how often we have the many crossroads, even in our own lives, to deny Christ or proclaim Christ, even with our actions, right? Our actions speak volumes about who we're following. We can either proclaim him or deny him. There's moments by moments. You see, Peter had thought, remember when he came and got approached in the garden? He pulled out the sword. He was ready to battle. He was, he was game on. He didn't expect the surprise attack of a little girl. He didn't expect the surprise attack of a little girl. And that's so true with us. We're ready to wage war and we're ready to go to battle we miss the surprise attacks in the workroom at work, the break room. We miss the surprise attacks at the gym and the conversation that we're in. We miss the surprise attacks at the sporting event that we're yelling at the ref. We, we, miss, the, we miss the surprise attacks of all the daily stuff, the little mundane things. That's where the battle typically happens. Peter, it says, he realized when he realized what the Lord had said, what does it say that he did? started weeping, just wept bitterly. He felt this. He realized what he had done. He realized that he had betrayed him. And in Luke twenty-two sixty-one, which is uh, the same, same account of the same happenings, Luke twenty-two sixty-one says, The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that in the courtyard? I, you you got to wonder if, if Peter could hear what was happening with Jesus you got to wonder if Jesus could hear what was happening with Peter, right? It goes both ways, ears, that's how it works, you know? Like, uh, you, you got to wonder if Jesus, as he's, as he's facing these accusations, as, he's, as he's, he has death looming, if he's not hearing in the background Peter in the courtyard saying, I swear I don't know this man. Who's he swearing by? Swearing to God that I don't know God? Like, Really? Like, I swear, like, so the denial, the betrayal that Jesus must have, must have felt, I imagine Peter never forgot that look, right? Never forgot that. That's not one you get out of your mind quickly. My question to us as it relates, how do we respond to our failings? When's the last time we were really broken over our sin? When was the last time that when we blew it, when we messed up, we were like, God, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I've blown it. I've dropped the ball. Forgive me. There's something to be gleamed about his humility, the fact that he no longer believed in his own strength. He no longer believed in his own strength. If you think about it, Christ is like, finally, I have something I can work with. He's finally let go of his false power or strength. He's finally let go of this bravado. And finally, I have an instrument that I can do work with. Somebody that's not bought into this spiritual elite that I can do all of this on my own. Finally, I have something I can work with. That leads to scene three. I've titled it Reconciliation Initiated. We're going to jump to a different text of the same account because it get, this is the one that gives this portrayal. John 21, if you don't mind flipping with me over to John 21, verses 15 through 19. It's a beautiful picture of reconciliation and how Jesus initiates that. John 21, 15, and I'll give a little backdrop after I read it. It says, When they had finished breakfast, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Think about this for a second where this was happening. This is after Jesus is raised again, and it's actually the third interaction that Jesus has with the disciples. Now he's running into seven of them out there in, on, the, on the lake fishing. It's kind of interesting. We don't know exactly if they were actually returning to their own trade. A lot would propose that they had failed, and so they were going back to the, what they had known. But either way, Jesus invites them to breakfast from the shoreline, and they meet a little bit of a deja vu. It's back to where it all started three years prior on, on a beach with the invitation to follow. Now he's back and he said, brings them in from their fishing. And they're sitting there. You imagine the group of them. There's probably some tension in the air, wouldn't you guess? You ever been in a room with an elephant kind of in the room where you're like, oh, this is awkward. Each one of these seven guys fully knows I've blown it. I've wandered. I've, go, I've betrayed him in my own right. I'm the one that ran in the woods. I'm the one that, that denied him in the courtyard. Each one of them recognizing the elephant in the room. What I love it is that you picture that. It's probably a lot of silence, a lot of awkwardness. Anybody else, when you're, when you're wrong, when you've blown it, you really don't have much to say, just kind of sit there in silence. Anybody else do that? Or am I the only one. Last, last week, we were talking about using our tongues for life and death. On Sunday afternoon, I did something where I snapped at little Alexa, the cute little four-eyed girl I have, and, and Adrian's like, oh, remember what you're preaching on this morning? I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I was just kind of quiet there for a moment, or actually a long moment, until apologized to her later on. But you think about how when we've blown it, there's that not really interested in talking piece that's a part of it. See these guys sitting around this fish breakfast. Jesus chooses to break the silence. He broke the silence. He initiated conversation. And isn't that what Jesus always does? He doesn't leave us in our silence. Why we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He pursues reconciliation. He doesn't wait for us to get it figured out. Anybody else grateful for that? I sure am. And so here in this scene, he does. He asks Peter some questions. It'd be difficult without the original Greek to understand what's actually happening here in this dialogue. At first, it seems a little bit random. I mean, your intellect tells you, like, I get it three times. He denied him three times. He gets a chance to restore his, his love. But what's actually happening, you have to understand the, the different types of love in the Bible. Well, for some of us, this is going to be a little bit of a, 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 a reminder. Who can, who can help me with this? The first one, Eros. Who can tell me what that is? Well, I won't talk through that. But that's basically basically uh, referring to desire and longing, where we get the word erotic. It's usually saved within the context of marriage and scripture. Philio, or ph- philio is described 
of, uh, we get the word Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love, the idea of a close companion or a friendship. Like usually that would be the greatest type of love that a human's capable of. And then the ultimate, who can tell me what the name of the type of love that God shows to us? Agape love, right? This is the ultimate unconditional love that Jesus Christ showed to us the unconditional love that's okay with his closest friends betraying him denying even knowing him and still hanging on a cross that's the agape love that was represented through Jesus Christ the important difference is to understand when you're thinking of this interaction let me explain why so the first time Jesus asks Peter he says Peter do you agape me Peter's response, yes, Jesus, I phileo you. Interesting, huh? In other words, Jesus saying, hey, big talker, where's that ultimate never abandon me kind of love that you described a couple days ago? Peter recognizing that his actions didn't support his claim, so he's a little reluctant to throw around the word agape any longer, right? Second time, Jesus again asked him, Peter, do you agape me? Same time. Now all of a sudden, in some degree of humility, Peter's acknowledging his weakness in a subtle way by saying, Jesus, I phileo you. I would love to say that I unconditionally love you, but clearly, based on my behavior, I can't make that statement, right? third time Jesus finally adjusts his question asks him Peter do you even phileo me do you even do you even have that degree of commitment to me do you even have a a brotherly love for me Peter and it says that it saddens him to have him have to ask this question although you know it's sometimes the the truth hurts says yes you know you know everything you know I at least love you that much It's a little snapshot of Jesus pointing to the issue as the degree of commitment. But the beautiful thing is, and this is what I don't want us to miss here, is it's a a glimpse, a snapshot into the character of God. He's not waiting for us to have the perfect, ultimate love and commitment to him. See, I'll take you where you're at. I'll meet you where you're at. You've, You've got this phileo love. Let's do it. Let's, let's do this. Let's, let's start from there. It's meeting us, not waiting for us to have, while we were yet sinners, he died for us, Wait, not waiting for us to have it all figured out. He meets us exactly where we're at. And then the powerful thing is, he says to him, he says, not only am I going to allow you to meet you with that tainted love, I'm going to not only do that, I'm going to embrace you and give you work to do. I'm going to give you a purpose. I'm going to let you prove yourself. I'm going to let you feed my sheep. I'm going to to call you. I'm going to invest you back into ministry. It's a beautiful picture of restoration and a snapshot of really what the Christian life looks like. So many of us think like, oh man, I've blown it again. I've wandered. I've strayed and I've denied him with my actions. But he's saying, listen, I'm taking you back. I took care of that on the cross. I'm taking you back. I, I'm, I'm giving you a job to do. I'm putting you back in the game. I'm not letting you sit on the sidelines. I'm, I'm taking you back. I've restored you. I've restored you. Sometimes we have this perception that one time we're restored and forgiven. And yes, positionally, that's absolutely true. 
but there's also the practicality of life and what it looks like to fall and get back up. How did, how did, how did Judas respond? He blew it, hung himself. Peter, what did he do? Blew it, wept, embraced, it, it let Jesus restore him. It's part of the Christian life. Even with our limited commitment, Jesus still invites us back. Peter later penned in 1 Peter 5.5, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And listen to what he says. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's somebody that knew. He's not, just, he's, not, he's not just speaking off the cuff. When he says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He got it. He fi- it finally sunk in. No more super Peter doing it in his own strength. He recognized it could only be through the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Last scene of our four scenes. Restoration complete is what I've titled it. This is my personally favorite part. In Acts 2, you see Jesus, Peter, he's like, man, Jesus has embraced me back, man. Just, give, just let me back in the ring. Give me a shot at this again. So he finally is in front of a crowd, and we won't take it, we won't, uh, you like that picture? I had to put that in of the complete restoration. The, uh, he finally gets his shot. He finally is back in the game, gets his chance to speak up in Acts 2. You can read that for your, yourself where he speaks and proclaims Christ boldly gets another shot in verse 37. Now when they heard this huge crowd, this they were cut to the heart. God used him mightily. In verse 41 it says, So those who received his words, Peter speaking, his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Like the, he, he, It's game on. Like He's having fruit. He's restored. He's back in. It's a beautiful picture of restorations. No way was he sitting in silence this time. He's going to speak up. He's a different person. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He had blown it, yet he was still accepted by Christ. I want to turn to one last section. Flip with me to Acts 4, verses 5 through 12. This is the ultimate picture of the restoration project there. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power, by what name did you do this? Listen to this, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known by all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation, listen to this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Whoo! 
That's an awesome message, man. Look at what. First off, look at who's in the audience. Who had he been crippled in fear about prior? Caiaphas, Annas, all the whole collection, the whole high priestly family. They're all gathered there, and he's finally getting his shot to proclaim Christ. And he doesn't lay on the heat like lightly. He's not like, well, guys, you know, that Jesus guy, you're kind of mean to him. Like, no, he's like, you killed him. You murdered him. He was the, he was the cornerstone. You rejected. He's pointing at, he's, he's bold. We see, as I pointed out, he's doing it now no longer in his power, but in the power of the, the Holy Spirit He's bold. This is the full completion. Now he's complete abandoned, fully in, because he went through the process. Because he was broken. He was messed up. He's weeping bitterly. He had betrayed. He had denied. He had called out curses on himself. Called out curses. Like when we start thinking about our betrayals and our different ways that we failed Jesus Christ, you're like, man, Peter's like, let's go toe-to-toe. Let's go toe-to-toe. We've blown it. You've blown it. I've blown it. We all have blown it. His story is our story, right? And his restoration or potential for restoration is your story. There's nothing you've done. There's no betrayal that's too great that Jesus isn't like, all right, do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Let's get you back in the game. Let's give you another opportunity to show me that you love me. Let's give you, let's, let's pick you back up. Let's pick you up back by your boots. It's an awesome picture of restoration. Amen? Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for this text this morning and for maybe someone that showed up just wondering, have I wandered too far? Have I forgotten you? Have I denied you? Am I beyond your reach? I thank you for this little snapshot of your character, who you are, the God that pursues us, the God that forgives us, the God that hung on a tree for us. We're so grateful. I pray that we'd live going into this week with that in mind, not a false picture of an angry God, but an accurate portrayal of a graceful God, one that loves to restore, loves restoration stories as much as we do. Thank you and praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. That's good news this morning, isn't it? Amen. Well, praise God for being the restorer. Let's stop resisting his restoration in our life. Let him mold you. Say, make me new again today. I know it was yesterday I messed up. Yeah. All right, today, another chance. Praise God for his grace and his patience with us. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless you.